how, how do you connect God who is eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful to humans who are limited in creation as well as by their sin? How does that connection occur? Um, today, I'm going to start a three-part series on the priesthood of the believer. Today is going to be a lot of content. So, if the person next to you is prone to sleep, prepare your elbow because they, 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 may, they may snooze a little because it's a lot of content, but I think it's important to know because it's particularly appropriate now. Um, a couple of years ago, we had the 500th anniversary of the Reformation um, in which we celebrated uh, Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. And Kevin Goldsmith and Josh, uh, one of our seminary students, were there a couple weeks ago and stood in front of the door and where Martin Luther started the, the culmination of the Reformation, which in many ways had begun before that, but came to a head at that point in time. So celebrating it, of course, I'm a pastor, so I bought a PlayStation Martin Luther that that's tall and he's on my desk too. And I bought a bobblehead Martin Luther that's on my desk at home because, you know, like you would do, right? I mean, uh, Martin Luther is one of the most significant characters, not just in the religious world, not just in Christianity, but in Western culture, and I'll try to argue that in a little bit. Hugely significant. When what Martin Luther did changed the face of the Western world. And today we're going to look at some of what he accomplished. Um, uh, when you think of the Reformation, I grew up in a Presbyterian church. We love the Reformation in the Presbyterian church. We get goosebumps over the Reformation. Um, uh, you think of the five solas, uh, the five alones, the five things which the Reformation taught the Christians that were unique and alone in our relationship to God. Uh, for instance, by faith alone. The only means by which we have salvation is by trusting in what Jesus did on the cross. Uh, through grace alone, not by our works, not by what we do, but only by virtue of God's grace do we have access to God. Um, by Scripture alone, the only source ultimately of truth is God's written Word, not the traditions of humans or the words of a particular group of people. Uh, by Christ alone, Jesus' work alone is the means by which we can have salvation. And for the glory of God alone, all of it ultimately is designed not for our benefit to bring glory to God. Those five solas, they're historically called, are, are the linchpin, the basics of what the Reformation taught. And, and that not only shook uh, the earth in creating the, the Protestant church, protesters, but it actually reshaped Roman Catholicism in many ways. The Counter-Reformation was an acknowledgment that the Roman church had lost its way and, and corrected some things, although we disagree, obviously, with many things. That's why we're still Protestant. But today, I want to talk about one other thing that came out of the Reformation, a phrase that you hear but probably have never thought a whole lot about. And in order to do that, I'm going to give you a whole lot of information, but I believe you can handle it. I really do. Well, most of you, with a few exceptions. I'm not going to name anyone, but generally speaking, I think y'all can do this. And that's called the priesthood of the believer, a phrase that you've probably heard, the priesthood of the believer. It is uniquely accredited to Martin Luther, 
And it clearly is a result of uh, his work in the Reformation and his breaking from the Roman Catholic Church. But it's a phrase that you hear, but what does it mean? In order to understand it, you have to go back to the Old Testament, because in the Old Testament, the means by which God created a faith for the Israelites to know God was the establishment of the nation of Israel and the sons of Aaron who would be the priests, specifically the tribe of Levi, and then the sons of Aaron inside of the tribe of Levi, and then later the sons of Zadok and others. But the priests had a unique role in the Old Testament in representing the people to God. They were mediators between God and man. They, they had a role of communicating to humans on behalf of God and communicating to God on behalf of the people. That was what a priest did. To get the best understanding, we don't have time to teach the Old, Old Testament today, but, but I'd love to, to get the best understanding of the role of the priesthood, I will take you to Leviticus chapter 16. I know many of you are reading it just this morning. But in Leviticus 16 is the most detailed description of the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur occurred once in the fall every year. It was, it was and still is the most holy day of those who are a part of the Jewish faith. And, and as such, it teaches us a great deal about the Old Testament faith of the Jews. On the Day of Atonement, and I've, I've given you Luke six, I mean Leviticus 16 is in the readings for uh, tomorrow and Tuesday so that you can read it for yourself. But on the Day of Atonement, in Luke, Leviticus, I keep saying Luke, they start with L. Leviticus chapter 16, um, everyone left the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the precursor of the temple. It was a tent or a tent of meeting. And, and the presence of God was in that in a special way during the Old Testament. But according to Leviticus, everyone, all the people had to leave the tabernacle because only one person was going to go into the presence of God that day. It would be the high priest. And the high priest would offer multiple sacrifices. First, he would offer the sacrifice of a bull, and that was a sin offering for his own sins. And he would take the blood of the bull, and when he entered the most holy place, the holy of holies, he would sprinkle the blood of the bull on the mercy street and before it. Um, The holy of holies is the most innermost room in all of the tabernacle. It's where the Ark of the Covenant, made famous by Raiders of the Lost Ark, for those who watch movies more than they read Bibles, um, uh, which was a gold-covered box of acacia wood with two cherubim whose wings touched over it, and the, that seat under the two cherubim was called the mercy seat, the seat of atonement. It was in a particular way, the presence of God was there. And separating the Holy of Holies was a veil or a curtain that some believe was as thick as four inches And its colors were purple and blue and gold. And that separated the most holy place from the holy place. And the only time anyone could go into the most holy place, the holy of holies, behind that curtain was the day of atonement. And then only the high priest. In the next room was the holy place. And the table of showbread and and, uh, other articles were there. And priests would go in there every day as part of the worship. You see that in Luke, the beginning, Zacharias, the son of John the Baptist, was functioning as the priest that day. And he went into the holy place to pray 
That was a daily function of, the, of it, different priests according to whether they were chosen to do it that day. But again, only the high priest went into the most holy place behind the veil. And then outside the holy place was the court, and that was where the altar the, for sacrifice was and the great basin for the washing of the sacrificial animals. And, and you can find all kinds of pictures of the tabernacle and get a sense of what it looked like. So on the Day of Atonement, on that day alone, the high priest would kill a bull because even he, as high priest, couldn't go into the most holy place without the acknowledgement of his own sin, and he would sprinkle the blood of that bull in the holy place before he could enter. They would also get two goats, and, and one would be chosen by lot to be a sin offering for the people, and the high priest would kill that goat, and he would also sprinkle that blood in the most holy place to gain access on behalf of the sins of the people. And then finally, the other goat, which the Bible called the scapegoat, that's where the term comes from. The scapegoat would be taken and the high priest would lay his hands on the head of the scapegoat and demonstrate that that scapegoat received responsibility for all the sins of the nation of Israel. And then one was chosen to lead the scapegoat out into the wilderness. And according to the Mishnah, which was ancient writings about how it was done, they were taken out in the wilderness, thrown off a cliff so they wouldn't follow him back into camp. Um, then the high priest would have gone in, sprinkled the blood, and made intercession before God in light of these sacrifices on behalf of the people of Israel. That's what Leviticus 16 says. So you see that in Scripture, the high priest has this unique role on representing the people to God and, and representing God to the people because he alone could gain access into that very presence of God to pray on behalf of the people for the people of Israel. And, and that's the underlying reality behind the priesthood of the believer. Some of you have already glazed over. Look at me. Look at me. But then something happens at Jesus' death. It's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew 27, 50 says, And when Jesus had cried out and again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. He chose to die. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks split and the tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. All three of the synoptic gospels say that when Jesus actually died, that curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place was torn in two from top to bottom. Four inches thick, torn in two from top to bottom. Why is that such a significant fact in the description of all three of the first gospels that they would each record it? Because they knew Leviticus 16. And they understood that Jesus' death gained access to the very presence of God, not just for the high priest one day a week, but for all 
who place their faith and hope in what Jesus accomplished on the cross. They understood that by Jesus dying on the cross, he took the place of all the sacrificial system, and for once and for all, he died and shed his blood, procuring forgiveness of sins for all who place their faith and hope in him so that they might experience resurrection as he did three days later. They understood that the Jewish system had just been totally flipped on its head. Because no longer was there a need for a special class of people from a special family who would represent them to go into the presence of God. Now the presence of God was made available to everyone. And that shook them to their teeth. In fact, uh, the Apostle Paul affirms the truth of that later on. Well, first, let me read some from Hebrews to assure you I'm not making this up. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 says, therefore since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Writer of the book of Hebrews says we have a new high priest. And he's not a descendant of Aaron or Zadok. He, He is descendant of God himself. And he doesn't go into the presence of God in the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is. He goes into the presence of God in the heavens, in the very presence of the Almighty God on our behalf. And so that there's no longer a need for the Day of Atonement. There's no longer a need for the holy place. There's no longer a need for the high priest. He continues on that in chapter 9. Of Hebrews. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also the, an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up, and he's going to describe what I did. In his first room, there was a lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread, and this was called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. And above the ark were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the atonement or mercy seat. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priest entered regularly into the outer room to carry out their ministry, like Zacharias. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people had committed. Verse 11, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. He went into the very presence of God. And he did not enter by means of blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all, what? By his own blood and thereby obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of the heifer sprinkled on those were ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason... Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. Prior to this, there was the covenant to Moses, whereby the law and the sacrificial was established. Because of Jesus' death, there is now a new covenant that does away with the priesthood. 
does away with the sacrificial system and gives a whole different access to the Father. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2 picks up this idea as of the one mediator in replace of the whole role of the priest and king and prophet as mediator. He says, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. Notice the context of this is prayer. We'll come back to that. For kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. We, we pray for peace, not just for our comfort, but so that we may do the work of God in freedom. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, the comfort and peace is not just for us to be happy, but so that we might freely take the message of Jesus to the world. But verse 5 is the one I want you to see. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as ransom for all men, the testimony given in the proper time. See, in the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the primary mediator was the priestly class and specifically the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And by the way, the king also had a, had a mediatory role because he represented God in the ruling of the nation. And many believe the prophet had a mediatory role because he told the people the words of God on behalf of God. But in particular, the high priest had a role as a mediator in going between the sinful people and the perfect God. And one of the things that Paul hints to when you read 1 Timothy is that he had to be both God and man. Why is that? Um, as a pastor, I've mediated conflicts. I know that's hard to believe. On occasion, there are conflicts in the church, especially between husbands and wives. I know that's hard to believe, but on occasion, they happen. And when you mediate, you have a heavy responsibility because you've got to gain the trust and identify with both parties. You have to be able to speak the language of both parties effectively in order to take a role of a mediator. Jesus has to be fully God and fully man because that's the only way he could be the perfect mediator between God and man. Uh, my 14-year-old granddaughter called me the other day. This was a highlight of my month. Um, she's going to a Christian school, and she was taking a, a test on the ancient uh, church councils, specifically the church uh, the Council of Chalcedon. I, I had the same reaction. I didn't remember the Council of Chalcedon either. But, but I bluffed my way through it because that's what you do, right? And, and she was asking me questions about these ancient councils and, and what they did. And, and when you look at the ancient councils, the first five centuries of the church, they, they were these meetings of the church leaders because they were trying to figure out who was Jesus because there would never been anyone like Jesus. And there were some of the preachers and bishops and leaders who said, well, he's clearly God. He's clearly God. So he couldn't be clear, whole, all man. He just looked like a man. Others said, no, he's definitely a man, but that means that he couldn't really be God. And so they went through these multiple councils where they argued about how to say it. In fact, there was one guy named Arius who posited his theory, and, and he was deemed wrong, so they sent him off to an island, which we're thinking about doing with the elder board at times. The, um, I'm joking. We don't have an island. Um, Arius lost the argument 
because there was a bishop named Athanasius. Stick with me, stick with me. Athanasius argued Jesus had to be fully God and fully man in order to mediate the division between God and man. If he were not fully God, he could not be the perfect sacrifice. If he were not fully man, he could not represent us in his death on the cross. And it's because he's fully God and fully man that he can function today as the great high priest who mediates between God and man. Is that cool or what? Right? It's pretty cool. There you go. And while we're speaking of cool, that's what that's about. That, that stained glass, I've heard all kinds of theories about what it is. What it's intended to be is, is a picture of the tearing of the veil. That when Jesus died, it was torn from top to bottom. The gold represents the presence of God. So by the tearing of the veil, everyone had free access to the presence of God. That's the point of it. It is a hugely significant event in the, the theology of the church because it represents one of the greatest things Jesus did. He, he gained our forgiveness for our sins, but it's not just the overcoming of the negative. He procured for us the ability to go into the very presence of God. Relationally, we, we have a whole new reality with him. In addition, he gave us the Holy Spirit, but, but it, is, it is a watershed moment in the history of the church and the history of redemption. Okay, take your eyes off the stained glass and look back at me. You can look at it next week. Let's go back to the book of Hebrews. So what, Andy? What difference does it make? Uh, chapter 4, the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is essentially an explanation of why Christianity is superior to Judaism, of how this New Testament, this new covenant that God created through Jesus' death and resurrection is superior to the old Mosaic covenant, which God created simply to point, to describe in advance the new covenant. That's the theme of the book of Hebrews, that the new covenant is superior. The, the new work of God is better. And so he will, he will start with the, the, how each aspect of Judaism is supplanted by the superior role of Christianity. In chapter 4, he says, since we have a great high priest, Jesus, who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, gone through the heavens, not into the most holy place, but into the very presence of God. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess because we have a sure mediator between us and God. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses because he was, is fully man. He understands our temptations. You ever consider that? There is no temptation taken you that Jesus didn't have. Tempted in all the ways we are. He was tempted by hunger. He was tempted by lust. He was tempted by greed. He was tempted by racism. He was tempted by all the great ways that we have temptations today. He 
genuinely faced every one of those temptations. What does Hebrews come conclude from that? So that he understands. He understands. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, but without sin. Look at the conclusion, Hebrews 4.16. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. Boldly approach the throne throne of grace, the King James says, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, we have a new high priest. And our high priest is in the very presence of God all the time. And he fully identifies with who we are. And by virtue of that, there's no other mediator. There is only one high priest. And because of that, we can boldly go to the throne of grace. Did you get that? We can speak to God with complete freedom. Because our high priest has, if we've placed our faith and hope in Christ, he has procured our forgiveness before God so that we can go to him boldly and say whatever we need to say. See, in the Roman Catholic Church, did not embrace the Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church took, uh, early in the church history, uh, some writers tried to connect Christianity with Judaism, and so they they kept the idea of the priesthood. And that priesthood represented a mediatory role between God and man. And that's why when they take the Eucharist, it is the priest alone who can dispense of the elements of the Eucharist because they believe he's re-sacrificing Jesus on the table. And, and, and that's why you say confession to a priest because there's still the role of the mediator between God and man. Martin Luther said, no, you missed something. You missed something. We're all priests now. Just as the sacrificial system was abolished, When Jesus died on the cross, the veil was torn. And we all have presence now to the very presence of God. So that as the writer of Hebrews says, we can boldly approach the throne of grace. We can talk to God as if he wants to listen. How many of us when we pray aren't bold because, well, first of all, we know we have no right to be bold before God. I mean, we're so aware of all our failings. And, and if we weren't aware of all our failings, there are people in our lives who are committed to reminding us. Some of you have that ministry in my life, and I, I can't tell you how much I value that, that constant reminder as if Julie's not enough. The, um, um, no, seriously, I, I, we, we don't need help. We all know that we don't merit God's favor, right? I mean, if we're honest, when we look in the mirror, we're all aware of shame for things we've done, inadequacies, imperfections. All of us know that we don't live the perfect Christian life, right? Sadly, many of us pray that way. We pray as if 
God's hearingness, God's welcomeness is dependent upon our righteousness. But what does Scripture say? It's dependent upon the righteousness of Christ. When, when God the Father, the triune God, hears our prayers, He doesn't see my sin or your sin. Instead, He hears it from the voice of the perfect Son of God so that we can pray boldly because God treats us as if there's no sin. Is that crazy? That's amazing. Yet, let's be honest, most of us don't pray that way. We, we often pray with a lack of faith because, well, I mean, we, we know that with, you know, I mean, look at me, God. Why, why would you answer my prayer in faith? I mean, look at, look at my inadequacies. I mean, uh, Jesus said it's the, price, uh, the faith the size of a mustard seed, but I'm not even sure I've got one that big. But see, we, again, we confuse the thought that it, the faith is dependent on us or the greatness of our faith. Scripture says the faith is dependent upon Him, our great high priest. It's He that accomplishes the work of God. Therefore, it is through His work that our prayers can be answered. And it's therefore our faith is fixed on Him and we get our eyes off of ourselves so that we can see how God might do crazy things because we prayed. Not because we deserve it, because Jesus did, our high priest. Right? Many of us live our Christian lives with very little hope. We're defeatist. You know, we kind of say, oh, God, I, I know that you might be able to do this, but, you know, look at me, look at the church, look at Christians. I mean, we're a mess, and we are. But our hope isn't fixed on us. It's our hope is fixed on our great high priest who is fully God and fully man and by whom we are represented to the Father so that we have access directly to the Father and He still yet, according to Romans 8, intercedes on our behalf. When we make our faith small, when we make our hope small, when we love small, it reflects that we are looking at ourselves and our inadequacy rather than the perfect adequacy of the one mediator between us and God. And it's by his adequacy that we can function as priests and speak boldly to the throne of grace in, in love and faith and hope, knowing that we have that access not because we deserve it, but because of who Jesus is. The priest of the believer reminds us that in spite of human frailty, human weakness, human sin that, that separates us, separated us from God just as much as that curtain separated Israel from the Ark of the Covenant, that by Jesus' death and sacrifice of Himself on the cross, He tore that separation apart for any who would trust in Him. So that even now, we can act as priests and boldly 
go into his presence and pray with confidence that he will answer. That ought to shake up your world. But I have one caution. This is Texas. We're individualist. And some of us say, well, I'm a priest. I don't need anybody. I'm not coming to church next week. I'm a priest. Um, in other words, it, it can create this idea that somehow the Christian life is something we do alone. James chapter 5, verse 16 takes just one aspect of the role of the priest and says, confess your sins to each other. See, because we're a nation of priests, what the Roman Catholic Church only did through the official priesthood, those things we as a whole community do for each other. We, we pray for each other. We confess sins to each other. We encourage each other to love and good deeds. We are now a community all made up of priests, and we have a responsibility to live out that priestly function in each other's lives. Is that crazy? Is that crazy? See, in many ways, the problem of the church today is that we think too little of what God accomplished through Jesus' death. We, we still pray as though there's a veil. We still don't believe that God really cares. We still don't act as though God really listens and will bless. We do, still don't believe as though God will change the world, not because of us, but because of what the great high priest did. Pray with me. Father, we confess that, frankly, this is a hard thought. We kind of liked having priests. We could make someone else responsible. But, but you not only freed us, but you gave us a new responsibility to represent you in a whole new way. Lord, help us to pray. Help us to go before the throne of grace with a boldness that's not based on who we are, but based on who your son, the great high priest, is. And help us to see him work in ways that we can't imagine. In Jesus' name, amen.